Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Jen. That's always one of my favorite mornings. Maybe that's because I really just want to get in line behind the kids and kind of dance my way through the room, but some of you is like torture. You get those palm branches. You don't know. You're allowed to move. It's okay. Celebration, all these things are very good. Um, So good to be with you to celebrate, honor our King uh, together. As Jen is saying, this is not just a Palm Sunday thing. This is an everyday, every Sunday deal, but it's especially fun to remember uh, something that we remember every single year. And this morning's really no different. The passage that we're going to look at is a passage that if you grew up in church, you could probably jump up here and, and, and preach this morning because you know the passage. And yet, there is so much in this passage that Jim read a few minutes ago in the beginning portion of our worship service, Luke 19. It's so important, actually, that all four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them tell you little different details, but all tell you the exact same story, the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, celebrated as king, hailed as the messianic, the Messiah, the promised ruler from the seed of David who's going to restore all things. And in a meeting with pastors and some of our directors this, earlier this week, we were talking about just the repetitive nature of Palm Sunday, how every year it's the same story. And Bill said something really, really cool that stuck with me. He said, we tell this story every year because we need it every single day. And there's so much truth to what Bill said there. So the details, the information that's in this story uh, is not new. I'm not going to change anything. Actually, that's a really good thing. (laughs) You should be scared if I start changing the story just to freshen it up, right? But our hope is not that maybe you'll receive more new information. Maybe you will. But more importantly, our hope and our prayer is that we, begin, we continually formed by these stories that we hear. It's not about just being informed, but it's about being formed by these stories. That we might become, as, as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and, and, and does a work among the people of God to make us look like the Son of God. That is our prayer this morning. And as we work through this Luke 19 passage, which if you have your Bibles, you can, you can go there to start, and we're going to jump to another spot uh, later on in our, our time together. Uh, we, we just read all of Luke 19, and so I'm not going to take the time to, this morning, read that entire passage, but I want to focus on one specific aspect of it, and it's Jesus' vehicle of choice, because the vehicle that He uses to enter the city is going to answer a couple of questions for us. The first question is, what kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king chooses to ride in on a donkey? And secondly, what are the implications for us as those of us who would follow him? So pretty simple this morning, not trying to overcomplicate this here. As we're heading into late spring, early summer, it's kind of that wedding season, number of anniversaries, number of weddings actually coming up, even within our own church in the next couple of months. And I can't help but think back, this is, Jolie and I are celebrating 13 years in June. Uh, And I think back to uh, when we got married, a friend of our family's uh, chauffeured us from our uh, ceremony to the reception in his convertible sports car. You know, it was kind of decorated like we do, you know, I don't know if it's actually a real good idea to hang tin cans off the back of the car, Um, whatever. Um... But it was decorated. It was meant to draw attention. You know, we got so many honks as we're driving by. It's got just married on it and all these things. 
And it drew attention in the way that kind of matched the ceremony that we had. And it just made sense. If you're, if you're in high school and you're thinking about prom or if you can remember prom, um, you get the limos, you get something that kind of matches the celebratory nature of it. And then there's sometimes where the vehicle just doesn't seem to match the person or the scenario. And when I say that, I, I think of one story in particular that came out a couple years ago in 2016. Uh, a really uh, prominent NBA superstar signed in 2016 a $94 million contract extension. And that's actually not that big in sports these days. Signed a $94 million contract extension, but what made the news is the car that he drove. Because in a world where celebrities who make those kinds of, of figures are getting the most exotic, crazy, souped-up sports cars, this guy continued to drive his 20-year-old Chevy truck. It was his high school car. And when he's asked why, he answered, it runs and it's paid off. He could pay cash for any car he wanted. The car just didn't seem to match. And when I think about Palm Sunday, there's something about this, about the vehicle that Jesus chose, that seems a little bit more like this. Like, what? Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, and it's meant to show us something about who he is. See, from the very beginning pages of Scripture, there has been this promise that there would be what is called the Messiah, the anointed one, a man who comes from the king, the, the line of King David, who's going to fix everything that's broken, who's going to restore all that we have done to ruin the world, who's going to bring a, a, a restored relationship between humans and God. And as we look back on the life of Jesus, we know that he is this Messiah. But again, from where we stand, we can see really clearly that the Messiah is not just some ordinary man, but this is God himself. That God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh and becomes like one of us and is the Messiah. He is the one God came to rescue, the very ones who rebelled against him. And yet throughout all of Jesus' ministry, as he's wander, walking around, healing, doing miracles, casting out demons, he's constantly telling the people that he's interacting with, even the demons himself, themselves, don't tell anybody who I am. Shh. Keep it a secret. Keep it quiet. But everything changes on Palm Sunday. We know that Jesus is the Messiah, but he kept that quiet until Palm Sunday when all of a sudden he does, he, he pulls out every pro, uh, prophetic word that came from the Old Testament, and he fulfills it all. All these pictures that we have of like, hey, the Messiah is going to come down this road, and he's going to be like this. Jesus starts checking all the boxes and fulfilling all these prophecies, declaring as loud and as clear as he possibly can, I am the Messiah. And with that type of amped up anticipation, with that type of importance, man, I'm sure expecting a sports car, and the sports car of that world would have been a donkey, not have been a donkey. It had been a horse. It had been a chariot. It would have been something that gave a distinguished look and, and, and matched the importance of that moment. But instead, Jesus comes on a donkey. And he does that, Zechariah 9 tells us, Zechariah 9 is, 9, 9 is one of these most important prophecies. And it says this, it's talking about this Messiah, this King who's coming. 
Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is one of those prophecies that Jesus is checking. He's saying, yes, I am Messiah, but it goes deeper than that. Again, he's not just showing you, I am the one you've been waiting for, but he tells you a little bit of who he is by the fact that he comes in the donkey. Did you hear how Zechariah described him? Humble. Humble. You see, when you think about a donkey, a donkey's just ordinary. Like in our stories, in our folklore, it's kind of like donkeys are stubborn and they're, you know, they're stupid and they're dumb. And Well, that's not really how the Bible thought of them. There's nothing insulting about riding on a donkey. There was just nothing special about it. Everybody had donkeys. It wasn't, it wasn't like super powerful. It was a symbol of humble peace. You wouldn't go riding a donkey into battle. That would be actually quite hilarious to see. They were just ordinary. So in terms of our story that we said just a minute ago, Jesus came riding in on a Chevy truck. Nothing wrong with the Chevy truck, right, Dave? <laughs> Nothing wrong with the Chevy truck. It's just an ordinary car. Nothing super flashy. Humble. Humility. Jesus is declaring, I am the king, but I am a humble king. And for our time this morning, I want us to just sit with that idea of humility. What does it mean to be humble? What does it mean that Jesus is a humble king? See, if we think about what humility is, humility, being humble, is to lower, either if you're humbling someone else or yourself, if you are marked by humility, is that you are putting yourself in a lower status, of, or a lower level of dignity, or a lower level of importance. What's interesting about that is that it's not the same as just like kind of self-deprecating humor, always talking about yourself down. It's not self-hatred. It's not about hiding your gifts and hiding who you are. Because what's interesting about all of those things is all of those are still focused on self. There's a book that is really, really helpful. I encourage you to read it. It's not very big. Pastor Tim Keller wrote a book. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's like 40 pages. It could fit in my back pocket. But what he does is in this book, he, he builds on the work of one of his favorite thinkers and theologian, C.S. Lewis, to unpack what does it mean to be humble. And Lewis describes humility as this. He says, and you might have heard this before, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's actually thinking about yourself less. Did you catch that? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. It's about making much of someone else. It's about getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto someone else. It's about not making every decision based on the answer to the question, what's in it for me? What will I gain from this? What are my preferences? See, pride keeps our lives centered on ourselves. So you can actually continue to insult yourself, and that's not humility because you're still talking about yourself. Lewis goes on to explain, what is this experience like? He says that if you meet someone who is actually really humble, 
that you would not come away thinking, wow, that person's really humble. But you'd come away thinking, wow, that person really cared about me. That's what the experience is like of a humble person. Keller goes on in this little booklet to say that humility is shy. As soon as you begin talking about it, it leaves. Humility is freedom from having to connect every single thing and every single experience back to myself. This is humility. This is the way of the donkey. Jesus' ministry from start to finish was characterized by the way of the donkey. Humility, not thinking of himself, but thinking of others. Jesus, as he describes his own ministry, says, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who was constantly coming near the social outcasts. He was constantly eating dinner with those who would hurt his reputation with no regard for that. He was the one who would touch the untouchables, who had compassion on the crowds. And even on the very night that before he was betrayed, before he would allow himself to be given over to the hands of sinners, takes off his outer garment, puts himself in a lower status of dignity, a lower status of importance, to wash the feet of his disciples. There was not a single person that was unworthy of Jesus' time. There was no act of service that was below him. See, he was free from the concern of what others felt about him and how he might have been perceived. Jesus embodied in every possible way true humility. Everywhere you turn, you see Jesus making specific trips to see one person that he might serve them. He sees the person that no one else sees. Even right here at the end of this passage, as Jesus has, has ridden his horse all, I just said horse, <laughs> he's ridden his donkey all the way into the city. But before he gets to the city, he stops in verse 19, chapter 19, verse 41 and 42, says as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He said, if you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. In the moment when all the focus and all the praise is on him, what's he doing? He's thinking about someone else. Jesus is the humble king. So the question becomes, what does that mean for us? 1 John 2 tells us that if we claim to live in him, if we claim to know him, if we claim to love him, that we will live as Jesus did. In fact, almost every single one of the New Testament letters talks about humility. This is a major theme for the followers of Christ for us that we are those who follow in the footsteps of our King. We are called to clothe ourselves with humility, to be completely humble and gentle, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so what might that look like for us? What does humility look like in our lives? 
Humility might look like not turning every single conversation back to us. We literally have social media platforms that are designed for you to just say what you think. One-way conversation. We're being trained to, to not listen to listen, but listen so we can talk. Humility might mean keeping the conversation on the other person and what their interests are by actually asking good questions. It might be in terms of service. It might be looking around your family, looking at the needs of your spouse rather than paying attention to your own comfort. Doing something for someone else without any expectation or any desire of repayment or acknowledgement. Several years ago, when Pastor Stan Hagberg was on staff here, I would walk in, I forget which day of the week, Monday or Tuesday, I believe it was. And every Monday or Tuesday, without fail, I would walk in the building right over here by the main office and I'd look up the stairs to the kitchen. And Pastor Stan would be up there just scrubbing everything. He'd be a little mad at me that I used his name, but it's okay. Did anyone acknowledge that? Did anybody know that? Did he do that for accolades? Did he do that for, to be recognized? No. Who are the people that embody that for you? Odds are they probably go overlooked, and that's what true humility is. Maybe in your family it means unloading the dishwasher, caring for the kids, doing something that you feel is beneath you, not so that you can earn brownie points with your spouse or get something out of them later, but just to bless them. It might be serving in the nursery here at church. It might be serving in some capacity that no one notices. It might mean just caring for your kids in the ordinary, ordinary things of life. Being a mom is a very thankless job. It embodies humility. Doing things that no one else is going to even notice for simply their betterment. And as we say that, if you can think of someone who does that, you know how amazing that is to look at. You know how beautiful it is to watch. Someone who has no, they don't need anything back. And yet, you know how almost impossible that is for you, right? Maybe it's just me. I look and I go, I want that. I want to be free of myself. I want to be free of such being so consumed by what you think of me. I want to be so free of my need to constantly have someone pat me on the back. Humility is so challenging. My ego is so thin that I'm constantly being threatened. I'm constantly concerned about myself. Our posture as humans is not, our default posture is not humility. It only takes a split second for us to be threatened by someone else to start thinking about our own needs. You ever have something that just kind of snaps you out and then you, you, you're, you're caught daydreaming or something and something happens and then you have a reaction. Those moments 
reveal the deepest desires of your heart. Silly example of this. The other day, I'm sitting at a stoplight, ready to turn left, on my way to the office here. I'm kind of in a little zone. I was waiting. There's tons of cars. Tons of cars going left. And I didn't realize a car had come up behind me. And I was turning left, had my turn signal on, and I didn't know they came up behind me. And they, they got kind of up behind me on the right because they wanted to turn right. And they could have snuck out. They had space to do that. But I didn't see them. And so they gave me just that friendly little beep. Not like the annoying, ah, but just a, just, a, just a little tap of the horn. And I was kind of jolted out of my trance. And all of a sudden, I was like, what's your problem? I'm going to sit here for 10 seconds just to teach you a lesson. Right? I mean, all this, all, it didn't take a second for what's deep inside of me to be revealed. That humility is not my knee-jerk reaction. That it took a little honk. That was the friendliest, most gentle honk I've ever had done to me. I don't honk that gently at other people. <laughs> that little honk was enough to just... Pride flared up. I had no interest in them. They were not insulting me, but immediately it sure felt like it. You think I'm a bad driver. You think I'm not aware. I wasn't, but that's okay. <laughs> not the point. That's not the point. <laughs> Do you ever have someone tell you news, whether it's really good or really hard, and it caught you off guard, and the only thing you could think about is, oh, that's going to affect me in this way? Humility feels impossible. We have been trained our entire lives to worry about ourselves because at the bottom of this issue of humility is this question. Who's going to look out for me? If I am that generous, will I have enough for myself? If I look out for and meet the needs of that person, will I have enough? If I, make, if I encourage and praise them and acknowledge them for what they've done, will anyone acknowledge me? If I serve in this low position, in this, in this way that feels beneath me right now, I won't be respected. If I don't assert myself here, I'm going to be seen as weak. Our fear underneath all of that is if I think about someone else, no one will think about me. And that's a bottom line fear for every human being in this room. If that resonates with you, you are not the only one. The question is, how do we grow in humility? How do we actually grow to care less about ourselves, to be free from worrying about me, so that I can actually have eyes to see those around me? And the answer to that, of course, comes back to Jesus. Because Jesus, when he lived on earth, was not simply just an example he was not simply just an example for you to follow and try to emulate his humility because, look, Jesus was humble, therefore you should be humble. He's far more than that. We find the answer to that bottom, deep down question of will anyone care about me? That is answered in the gospel. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. What I believe is one of the most, if I can say this, the most important passage in the Bible. 
I probably shouldn't say that, but I just did. Now it's on YouTube. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. Apostle Paul goes on to say, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one in spirit and of one mind. Here's the command for us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, not being consumed with your own needs, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he goes to Jesus. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Pause there for just a second because what Paul is saying is that humility is directly tied to your understanding of what Jesus has done in the gospel. Because in the gospel, Jesus doesn't just set you an example of humility. But in his death, in his humbling of himself, in the fact that God, the creator of the universe, who breathed out stars, who sustains everything by the word of his mouth, was concerned about you. And he became like us, and he came to earth, and he humbled himself, not just to becoming human, but to becoming a servant. He humbled himself, not just becoming a servant, by becoming obedient to death. Because in his death, Jesus reminds you, he tells you, I have taken care of everything that you need. Jesus coming to earth was not for his own benefit, but was for yours. So that underlying fear that says, if I do this, if I look out for someone else, who's going to look out for me? And Jesus flips that and says, I've already taken care of everything you need. Therefore, you're free to look to the needs of others. Because what is it in this world that you could gain that would add to what I've already done for you? What could be done from you? What could be withheld from you in this world that would take away from what I've already done for you and given to you? I have taken your sin and I have thrown it into the depths of the sea as we saw last week. I have removed it as far as the east is from the west, which are eternal in those directions. I have taken you and I have given you an inheritance that cannot spoil. It is an eternal hope. It is fixed for you. It is sealed in you with the Holy Spirit until the day when Jesus comes and your faith becomes sight. I have made you an heir and I own the whole universe, and all of it now belongs to you. I have called you beloved. I have said, you are my child, and I'm pleased with you. What can someone say against you? If God is for us, who can be against you? Jesus says at the cross, through his death, I've given you everything you need. What are you lacking? 
And you feel a little bit silly when you say, I want to be acknowledged at work for that project I just did. I'm afraid my life's going to not be very comfortable if I serve, if I give myself, if I'm generous. Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for thinking so much about myself. And he says to you, I love you, I know. I've forgiven you. And even in that moment is a moment to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our failures, off of our pride, and fix our eyes on Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death. Because it's in fixing our eyes on Christ It's in feasting on him. It's in letting his story capture our minds of replaying and reminding ourselves, re-preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again. That God uses that and reorients us and reassures us deep down that who we are and what we have in Christ cannot be taken. It reminds you that you are free You are free from the need of worrying about you. And now, humility is an option. Now, humility becomes a joy to take what I have experienced from Jesus and give you that same one. To not look out to my own needs, but to the needs of others. But here's the beautiful thing. It's not just what Jesus has done, but it's also what he's promised to do. Because as we follow our Savior, as we follow our humble King on the donkey into humility, Jesus goes to death, but what's on the other side of death? It's resurrection. Go back to Philippians chapter 2, looking at verse 9. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself, therefore God has exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The conclusion is that at the other side of humility, that on the other side of death, is resurrection and exaltation. Here's the thing Jesus invites us into that same path. First Peter says, To humble yourselves under God's mighty hand because he will lift you up in due time. The question is, will you wait? Do you trust him that he actually will bring the exaltation? Because if you're united with him, we talked about this last week in baptism, in a death like his, we actually will be, will be united with him in a resurrection like his as well. Do you believe that the path of humility is the path of strength? Do you believe that Christ has taken care of everything you need? And do you believe that humility, that caring for the needs of others, is true freedom? The rest of this week is an invitation for us to follow Jesus into his humiliation. I always come to Palm Sunday a little bit emotionally confused because what starts out in celebration here this morning of which Jesus begins to weep in Luke 19 
is not just an invitation into a party, into celebrating Jesus as king, because our king is on his way to his death, to ultimate humiliation of being hung naked on a cross for all to see, and that's not even the worst of it. But he who had no sin became sin for us. And the invitation is follow him. If you hang out up here on the mountaintop of Palm Sunday and you come back on Sunday to the other mountaintop of Easter, you will have missed the journey. You will have missed the, the, the invitation to true humility, to follow our Savior into his death so that we might be a part of his resurrection. Christianity is the only religion that boasts in the humiliation of its God. But it's the only one that's true. It's the only one that brings life. That says that Jesus didn't just come to be an example, but he came to take care of every question you've had about yourself. And so will you join us this week Will you join us as we follow our Savior into his humiliation to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we might come back next week even more amazed, even more grateful that he didn't stay dead, but that Christ exalted, was exalted to the highest place. Let's pray together, and then we're going to sing a prayer, a prayer that says, Lord, make our hearts like yours. Father, our default is not to be humble. We have spent our entire lives asking the question, who will take care of me? And Jesus, you answered that. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Would you help us believe that? Not intellectually alone, but would you help us to believe that deep at the core of who we are? Would you free us from ourselves so that we might have eyes to see the needs of those around us? Because the world is desperately longing for a love like this. We are desperate for humility. So Lord, free us Free us from ourselves that we might serve others so that we might trust that as we humble ourselves before you, that you, Jesus, you, Father, will exalt us in due time. Lord, make us a people that looks to the needs, not of our own, not to our own interests, but to the interests of others, for your glory as we follow you into your death and ultimately to your resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.